What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 60. It's titled, Are You Hoarding or Investing? I am back in Idaho after traveling in Scandinavia, in Norway, and Sweden for three weeks. It was an incredible trip. I learned a lot over the next few episodes. I'm sure I'll I'll reference some of the things I learned. This particular episode, I want to talk about hoarding versus investing. And hoarding often has perhaps a negative connotation. But the reality is we, we all hoard and we all invest. But it's important to understand the dynamics between the two. Before we get into the topic, I wanted to make an announcement. As you know, about six months ago, I launched a premium membership site called the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. It was a place for those listeners and others that wanted to dig into the topics that we discussed on this podcast in more detail and to to really better understand what investment conditions were so they could adjust their portfolios based on the current market environment. The Hub has gone well. But one of the things as I I was traveling, I I had an experience that I got an email from a a new hub member. And it it was a it was a heartfelt email, but she'd only only been a member for just really a a couple weeks and she asked to cancel. And and I have to admit, (laughs) I really, really had had always not liked getting fired. And and it seems Completely silly, but when I was an investment advisor, that was the worst. When a client, and you know, many of these clients would pay fifty, hundred thousand dollars, and and they'd fire me, and I'd I'd feel awful, even though it wasn't necessarily anything I had done. Things change, circumstances change, and but she wanted to cancel, and I I it only been a couple of weeks, so I went ahead and, and refunded the money. But then I asked her, you know what? what was not there for you? What what could I have done differently in terms of the hub? And she said that, you know, she ta- ta- discussed her, her situation. She was sort of a perfect candidate. We were very much aligned in terms of investment philosophy. But she said, as she saw all the content on there, all the videos and, and audio lessons, she felt overwhelmed. and And that really got me thinking that, Six months in, there is a lot of content on the hub, and and I realized I need a little more formal process for bringing on new members of the hub to to orient what's there to to really to structure kind of an introductory course on on the way that I view the world, how the hub can be helpful, and and as a result, that's going to take some time to put together, and so the hub will continue to go on. 
for existing members, but I would be closing the hub for new members as of the end of June 2015. So if it's still June and it's still 2015, I'm going to be closing the hub as July 1st, it's closed. And it'll be closed for a couple months as I, one, rework the website, but come up with a more structured process for bringing on new members. And then in the future, it'll just be done in in more of a a batch type process because I want it to be more of a mentoring type situation. So we'll be launching webcasts so that you can interact with me live and things of that sort. But I just wanted to make that announcement. So June 30th is the last day for new members for time. So if if you've been kind of on the fence and you wanted to give it a try, go ahead and sign up. It's at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Now back to hoarding versus investing. When I travel to a new country, I'm always looking for things that just didn't seem, that just sort of stand out, that this, this is different. This is not my typical experience. And I'm looking for things that just don't fit the pattern. And, and for example, in, in both Norway and Sweden, as you go around, they're very, very diverse countries in terms of the, the populace. And, and, I, and that, that was surprising to me in terms of, I, I thought, where I live, there's a lot of Swedes or, or Swedes that emigrated here 100 or so years ago. And so I'm thinking that both these countries are going to be blonde hair, blue-eyed predominantly. Now, that, that's probably completely ignorant of me. And I just didn't know. And so it was a very, very diverse country. It was there in Norway on Constitution Day, their Independence Day. Great parade, very, very diverse countries. But in front of the stores, there are typically women that that are from Eastern Europe, from Romania, primarily from Romania, in Bulgaria. And, and they're begging. And, and it's common to see beggars throughout the world. But what struck me as different here is is the there was a sense of order there in the sense that there was always one person in front of the store. There wasn't there wasn't two, and they weren't sort of mid street. They were just sort of almost stationed there, and they all had the same many of them had the same colored cup. They were carrying the same type of bag. They were almost on the same type of chair, and it was it was there was a sense of regularity to it that that when I've seen beggars and those asking for help in, in other areas, it was much more random. And, and apparently, so that, that's something that stood out to me, and it's something that this, the Swedes and the Norwegians are struggling with as, as some of the Eastern Bloc has become part of the European Union, what to do about all of, of these. Many of them were, were Romanis that, that were there, but... And there's some controversy whether these women are being controlled. In other words, they're being conscripted into this and, and their visas have been taken away. They've, they've come in on a travel visa and whoever their bosses are have taken away their visas and they're somewhat stuck. And because there seems to be some type of, of controlling aspect to it. But the point is, it was this, there was a sense uh, of something that didn't fit my typical pattern as I've seen beggars throughout the world. The same thing occurred when I looked at the forest. Sweden has a lot 
of spruce and pine forest. They're, in fact, I think Sweden is the most forested country than any in, in Europe other than Russia, which I guess Russia is not in Europe. So, so as you look at it and you look closer at the forest, you realize that there's a sense, they're quite orderly. They're not a typical forest in terms of, you know, when I look at forest here in Idaho, which we have a lot of pine forests there, the trees are haphazardly, they're clumped together, they're all fighting for air and light. But these forests, they were spread apart evenly. In other words, they were managed. They were managed forests. These were tree farms. And the Swedish Forest Agency says 50% of the nation's forests are owned by families. So half, half the forests in the country are owned by families. And most of those family forests are owned by women. And this is what, and the last night we were in Sweden, we stayed with a couple that was from the Netherlands. We, we rented a house and we had the offered to, to, make, dinner with, to make dinner for us and, and breakfast. So we had dinner with them and got to talking about these forests. And what's interesting is the typical tree that, that is kept on these tree farms is there 50 to 75 years. And then they're harvested. And, and then, because it serves as really the retirement, a portion of the retirement savings for these retirees and near retirees. So at the end, end of 75 years, they get to harvest the trees, and that serves as part of their pension. Now, after they harvest the trees, then they go ahead and they plant new young saplings, young trees for the next generation. And so the current generation harvested trees for the retirement from that the previous generation planted. And it was an incredible idea. When I was investment manager, we used to, I used to research timber managers. And, and I remember them saying, ideally, we would keep these trees for 25 to 50 years, but most institutions only wanted to invest for 13 years. Your financial return, if you keep trees in the ground, plant them young and keep them for 50 to 75 years, is incredibly high. Very good financial return. That is investing. They is investing. Let me give you a definition. Investing is deploying capital in projects that enhance a nation's capacity to produce and deliver goods and services to meet the needs of current and the future populace. Let me let me focus on that a minute. So you deploy capital. So when you invest. You have capital and you deploy it, and it's in projects that generate some type of return, but generally projects that, that contribute to the either the infrastructure or the capacity to produce goods and services. So a timber farm, capital is deployed, the trees grow, and then the timber is harvested and can be used for shelter, can be used for furniture. And so investing would include investments in roads, bridges, factories, stores, basic research, education, power plants, renewable resources such as timber. So that, that's what investing is. Now, when we, often when we think of investing, we're thinking, oh, I'm going to buy a bond or I'm going to buy a stock. 
and, and those are securities. But then there is a social aspect to investing because when I buy a bond, I'm really deploying capital that a borrower, a corporation, wants to use. And so we're connected. There's a social connection. I buy the bond. I now have an asset. But the company has a liability. They have a responsibility to pay me interest and to return my principal. So they want to, they're going to take those bond proceeds and invest in a project that will hopefully generate a return that is higher than the rate of interest on the debt. So we're connected. There's a social connection when it comes to investing, oftentimes. So the same principle applies to stocks. A company issues stock. When they do so, they sell a portion of the enterprise. And then the company takes those proceeds and invest it in a capital project that will hopefully generate sufficient profits to pay dividends. The stock is my asset. And while for the company's directors and, and officers, they don't have a contractual obligation. In other words, they, in terms of they don't have a liability to pay me my principal back as they would with a bond. But they do have a fiduciary duty, a fiduciary responsibility to act in good faith and apply their best business judgment in deploying the capital of their shareholders. We're connected. And so this investing is deploying capital to produce either the capacity to produce in the future or goods and services or or currently. And, And that is an important aspect because as populations grow, we need more food, we need more shelter to meet those needs. Now, Jerry, one of our listeners, asked, a number of years ago, or years ago, a few weeks ago, to address this idea of population growing and resource constraints, and is it possible to have a growing economy or a, a viable economy without growth? And that, that's a topic for a future episode. But just we need to remember, investing is deploying capital that does increase a nation's capacity to produce, and it can include infrastructure and and things of that sort. What's hoarding? Hoarding is different. Hoarding means to hide something away, either for a future productive use or in hopes it will increase in value. I guess that could be and or. And so when we talk about items hoarded for future productive use, that could be Food. We have some food storage. We're hoarding away like little squirrels some food for in case something catastrophic happens. And I've talked about this in the past episode. The, the importance of having some type of reserve, some type of buffer. We have food stored away. We have fabric stored away. My Lapril likes to sew, and, and she likes fabric. Fabric can be hoarded for future clothes. I know people that hoard ammunition, and and you could say they're hoarding it for perhaps future hunting opportunities. So these are things that, that there is a future productive use. They're basic things that we can use to sustain life. 
Now, there are some items that can be hoarded that have little or no productive use and that they're not employed as inputs to create goods and services that sustain life. Items in this category include what we talked about last week, gold. Gold can be hoarded, but it's not really used to create anything as an input other than perhaps jewelry. Precious gems can be hoarded in the same way. The digital currency, Bitcoin, is, well, theoretically can be used to to purchase things as a form of money, is primarily being used, is being hoarded. It's being hoarded tremendously. I just read a book called Digital Gold by Nathaniel Poppers, I believe the author's name, and he talked about the early days of Bitcoin, and it was really, really eye-opening, but much of... Bitcoin is it's being hoarded. In fact, there's almost a desire from some holders, hoarders of Bitcoin that it not be spent because if Bitcoin is spent on real goods and services, many of those companies go ahead and turn around and convert the Bitcoin back to dollar and so it puts pressure on the the price or the value of Bitcoin. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in my profession, I've seen how important it is to get quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn can help you with that. It's not just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. So hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. The Pearl and I recently had dinner with some friends who run a retail business. They have multiple stores and an online shop. And they recently used Shopify to better manage their inventory so they could ship online orders out of all of their stores instead of the warehouse. It helped them get a higher conversion rate on their website because of Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, just like it did for our friends. With the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com david, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash David now to grow your business, no matter what state you're in. Shopify.com slash David. 
So why would we hoard something that has no productive use, no future need, no inherent demand that at some point it can be used to build something that sustains life? The only reason to hoard something with no productive use is we believe it will go up in value over time. And the only way it can go up value in time is that future hoarders want it even more or there's more hoarders and there's, there's a reduced or limited supply, such as the case of Bitcoin, because there's a limit to the number of Bitcoin in circulation, 21 million, or gold is scarce and there'll be a more population and more hoarders that want it. That's the only fundamental investment case for hoarding gold, precious gems, and, and Bitcoin. Now, I, I own some of those. Most people have some of both. Some, we have investments in productive resources, and we have hoards. Some of the hoards are for things that do have a productive use, such as food, fabric, ammunition. But some of our hoards can simply be things that we believe will go up in value because future hoarders will want them. Now, there is a cost to buying things or hoarding things that have no productive use. I've been reading a book by Peter Bernstein on on gold, and, and I forget the name of the title. I'll put it in the show notes, or if you're a member of the Insider's Guide, you, you'll, you'll get that. But he just talked about the history of gold and and just the cost, the, the sheer energy cost, the cost in, in human labor to get to get this rock and how difficult it is. The cost of getting something that essentially has no use other than to be there. In some ways, it's ludicrous. Bitcoin, also there's a cost. In order to verify transactions... And there needs to be this mathematical algorithm that's solved, and there's huge computers networks dedicated to it. Those servers need to be powered up. Power, there's an energy cost to that. And and so whenever we hoard, we need to recognize there is a cost. And and I'm not saying we shouldn't hoard, because I I admit it. I I have some gold. I have some Bitcoin. I I don't have any precious gems. I don't very much. Because here's, here's an important component. In order for hoarders to be successful, most people can't be hoarders. We need most of us to be investors. We need most of the world's investment capital to be invested in project that increases the world's capacity to produce and transport life-sustaining goods and services such as food, clothing, energy, and shelter. If everyone just hoarded, it would cause the price of gold, precious stones, and Bitcoin to skyrocket. But only for a time. At some point, we would start to see critical shortages uh, of particular resources. And then we would come to realize, we don't know already, you can't eat gold and Bitcoin. So hoarding is not bad. We just have to recognize why we're doing it. Some hoarding is is just prudent management in terms of setting things aside that could be used for a rainy day. Some hoarding is simply 
we believe something will be scarce and it will go up in value over time because not because it has any productive use, but simply because there'll be others that want it more and are willing to pay more. Most of, of my investment portfolio, I suspect most of your investment portfolio is actually invested in, in products. Now, again, there's this social aspect to it. You're buying securities, but there's somebody on the other side that either has a liability or some type of fiduciary relation, relationship or duty to deploy the capital that will hopefully generate a return. Hoarding, in some regards, particularly for good for things that don't have any productive use, it, there's an element of selfishness to it. Now, not like in an evil way, but we just need to recognize when we're, we're I think of Ron Swanson uh, on the television show, the U.S. television show, Parks and Recreation. He has his, his gold sort of buried everywhere throughout the town, right? I mean, that's somewhat of a selfish attitude, but it's, it's not necessarily bad to, to have some gold as a diversifier, but we just need to recognize it's a hoard. I've mentioned the private tree farms owned by families in, in Sweden. There were two other things I learned in Sweden that just, just the one just blew me away. And it was an experience I had with my son, Camden. We were near the Royal Palace in Stockholm, and there was a crowd gathering because the, the military was, was dressed in ceremonial uniforms, and, and we thought there was going to be a changing the guard. And, and the, a gentleman came up, an official, and said to a group of, of us, the, do you want to go into the courtyard to watch this ceremony? Because it turns out that the president of India, Pranab Kumar Mukherjee, and I probably mispronounced that, was going to be welcomed, a state visit, was going to meet the king, Carl XVI Gustav, and the queen, and other royalty. And what do we wanted to see? I said, sure, we'll go in. So we, we walked into this courtyard, and there was no metal detectors. There was no real, nothing, we <laughs> complete strangers walking into this courtyard. And, and there was a blue carpet on the ground, and the military was there, uh, I guess the Royal Guards maybe, and I'm showing my ignorance of Sweden, uh, a band playing, there, were, there was royalty in a receiving line on the other side of the courtyard, and, and we were sort of standing behind this barrier. So the embassy representatives of India had given us Indian flags to, to hold, to, to, to wave, and, and so we didn't know what to expect. So the, this horses, horses come in, the, a royal carriage, and the king and the president uh, of India are sitting there, and they stop this carriage literally four feet from us, maybe five. And then they get out. I mean, it's right there. And, and what was so amazing about it was the complete level of trust that they had in an age where we are so hyper vigilant about security, about fears of terrorism. There is the the president of the second largest country in the world, and and the 
king of a, a, a very prosperous country, getting out an open carriage four feet from my son and I, and completely trusting. And, and it never would have happened in the U.S., just never would have happened in the U.S. So that was amazing. The other experience that I had that I wasn't aware of, as, as I mentioned, the dinner I had with this couple from the Netherlands, there's a concept in Sweden, and I'm going to mispronounce this word also. It's called Alamansraten, and it means every man's right. And it's a freedom granted by the Constitution of Sweden that everyone has access to nature in accordance to this term, Alice Matra, which which basically means you can go anywhere in the country on private land and camp. You can walk and, and hike through. You can gather berries. You can gather mushrooms. You can use the land. Now, it's in talking to this couple, it's polite to ask permission, but it's not illegal to go on to private land and gather berries, to gather mushrooms, to camp for a couple days. And, and that, does, that also doesn't happen in, in the U.S. and many other countries. We're so obsessed with private property rights. But here is this, really this freedom to roam is what it's called. And it's, a, it's an incredibly powerful principle. But it's also a principle that can be abused. The family we, we were staying with said what's happening is there are organized, essentially gatherers coming from Eastern Europe. They come over the border and they go in and they could take advantage of this freedom of Rome and they're harvesting many of the berries and mushrooms. And, and so, in, in a word, they're hoarding right? The, the spirit of freedom to Rome is to take what you use or need in the current moment and leave the remainder for everyone else. But it was an intriguing concept. So that's a couple of experiences I had on this trip. Very, very eye-opening, beautiful, beautiful countries. But that is investing versus hoarding. This is episode 60. Any questions, you can email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where I'll post a picture. You can see me and my son standing there as the king of Sweden and the president of India come walking by. So that's moneyfortherestofus.net. It's also where you can sign up for an insider's guide, and I'll email those show notes to you. I'm also doing something different with the insider's guide. I... Write an article for our local paper every week that is really, and I send that out to a, a newsletter list, and I it forms sort of a summary of the podcast because it, it becomes really my notes for each week's episode. I'm in the process of redoing the Money for the Rest of Us website, but I'm also I've been pu- I've been publishing those articles on a separate website called J. David Stein. Com. I'm going to start including those articles every week in the Insider's Guide. So you'll be able to read. It's, they're, they're, they're typically short, seven to, to 900 words. But it provides a really nice summary of that week's episode. So you can sign up for that Insider's Guide at moneyfortherestofus.net. And uh, if you would like to leave a review for the podcast, I'd very much appreciate that on iTunes. Again, if you're interested in the Money for the Rest of Us hub, it will be closing to new members 
as of the end of June. So sign up now, and then I'll be reopening it again in probably in September. Everything I've shared with you in this episode is for general education only. I've not provided any type of investment advice. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I'm simply providing general education on money, the economy, and how they work. So have a great week.